Well, I knew I was a sinner for as long as I can remember. From the time I could reason and reflect, there always was enough evidence around me to tell me that was the case. And yet, to this day, I remember distinctly a certain afternoon in the summer after my sophomore year in college when the weight and the pervasiveness and the complexity and just the evil of my own sinful heart came home to me in a unique way. And I was, the weird thing is I was doing good things and I was on a summer mission trip and I was playing basketball in a league in our team. We were all Christians and we would ask the other team at halftime if we could do a gospel presentation. So we're doing some solid evangelism. Uh, but right towards the end of the season, I badly sprained my ankle. I think it was during a game, and I couldn't play anymore, and I was really disappointed about it. And so I lay in bed, and the rest of the team went out to play. I had my ankle raised, ice on it, it was hurting. And no one was around, I was all by myself, and it was getting dark outside, and I had a wonderful little pity party with myself. But then the Holy Spirit really led me into a time of reviewing my life as I finally had time to listen to him and um, especially my relationships and something uh, deep and ugly about myself dawned on me and that was that even though I was typically fairly nice to people my friends and my acquaintances that really I thought they existed to please me and I was really the center of my relationships oftentimes, and I was using people rather than loving people. And I was doing good stuff, but oftentimes it was about me. And I just grieved that day. And it was a heavy time for, for quite a while, but then amazingly, it also shifted into an amazingly sweet and joyful time as I had some fellowship with God that I just hadn't had. And I memorized 1 Corinthians 13 and just wrestled with it, with the Lord. And I wish I could say at that moment that I just left that sin pattern behind, but I can't. However, that was a watershed moment for me, a unique moment for me of self-awareness to, to expose the depths of my sin, my propensities in a way I hadn't seen them, and also to move me toward God in a way that I hadn't known God. And so what about times like that in your life? Have you known times of deep conviction and also further promptings to know God and His grace? I mean, I've had others as well. It just keeps happening at different stages. Israel did in a big way in the passage we're looking at today. So I wanna, I'm looking at a block of passages from Exodus 32 to 34. And so we're gonna read the first part and the last part, Exodus 32. 32.1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this man, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 
So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And now turn to Exodus 34, verse 5. 34:5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And the grass withers, flowers fade. This good word endures to our day and unto eternity. Thanks be to God. And so, so far in Exodus, until we get to chapter 32, so far, sin has not been front and center in Exodus. It hasn't been prominent. I mean, yeah, Israel had to sacrifice their own Passover lambs when they were in Egypt. It told them that Just like the Egyptians, they needed blood to cover their guilt and protect them from the destroying angel. At the same time, it wasn't developed very much because very soon thereafter, they are redeemed and go through the sea and and Egypt is swallowed up in judgment. And yet we saw Israel en route to Sinai, doubting God, complaining against him, wanting to go back to Egypt. And yet the stress on that section, walking to Sinai, is on God's kindness and His dependability and His care over them in in spite of their weaknesses or in their weaknesses. And yes, we witness Israel at the mountain and God warns them to consecrate themselves, don't touch the mountain. They're terrified by God's glory. They ask Moses to speak to them, not God, because it's so frightening. They need to be sprinkled by the blood to make covenant with God because they're going to sin. But it's all their sin in a general way or even a perspective way. It's like, yeah, we know we're sinners and we need God's grace, or we know we're going to sin and we're going to need God's grace, but it's not front and center. But then we get to Exodus 32 and, and, and the weight and the pervasiveness and the complexity and the utter evil of Israel's sin is truly exposed and truly comes home to them. I mean, even just the number of words for sin in our section underscores this. There are 11 instances of sin words in these three chapters versus 
10 in all the prior chapters. It's a prominent theme, but it's really far more intense than that. You see, when Israel made covenant with God, back in chapter 24, they promised all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And the golden calf incident is the very next time we see Israel do anything. They make their promise, and then the next thing we see the nation do is completely rebel and reject that promise. It's their next action after embracing the Ten Commandments. Everything in between is God speaking to Moses on top of the mountain. God speaking to Moses about how he can dwell in the midst of his people. God making provision to be close to his people, the tabernacle priests and sacrifices. God's making arrangements for the very thing the people want. And instead of being patient for God, they reject God. I mean, it makes it even worse. Israel gets impatient. It's a form of unbelief. The blood of the covenant's hardly dried before they want another God. So they crowd around Aaron and they pressure him. Up, make us gods who shall go before us. And Aaron caves in far too easily. He tells him to take off the rings and fashions this state-of-the-art gold calf. And they say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then Aaron kind of tries to salvage the situation, bring it back, and says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Well, the next day they get up, offer burnt offerings, bring peace offerings, eat, drink, then throw off God's word and throw themselves into this erotic, frenzied, pagan dance party like the the nations worshipped. And so we ask, why did they select a golden calf? And and the answer is the Egyptians worshipped their deities through cows. Various deities were in the form of cows. That's what Israel knew It was harder to get Egypt out of Israel than Israel out of Egypt. It's harder to get the world out of us than us out of the world and into the church. And so the people sin really big. It's a big one. They break the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The people say, make us gods, and these are your gods. And you notice, they credit other gods with doing the redeeming work that only Yahweh had done. Um, Do we ever credit our little deities for doing the work that God does for us? They break the second commandment, which is you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Because Aaron says tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So Aaron does the unthinkable and he reduces the redeeming God of Israel to a little golden inanimate object. He calls the calf the Lord. And remember, the second commandment prohibits worshiping the right God in the wrong way. So right after promising obedience, right when God's planning their good, right during a a small test when God hasn't, 
When Moses just had been gone less than 40 days, Aaron and the people get impatient, so they worship God after their own imagining and follow God after their own desire. And they do it in the manner of the primary culture they knew, which is Egypt. And so the question for us is, how do I get impatient with God? How does my unbelief manifest? I don't like your timetable, and I don't like your management. How do I worship God after my own imagining? How do I follow God after my own desire? How is the culture around me shaping my heart more than God's Word? What's my golden calf mindset? For all I do and say, how does my culture set my agenda? and wrap up what the Bible says in my own feelings and preconceptions. So the golden calf is Israel's great Romans 7, 9 moment. You remember, Paul just laments his own sinful heart. He goes, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. I mean, it couldn't be starker. You know what Paul's saying is, when there wasn't a clear commandment, sin kind of was dormant. But the minute a clear commandment came in, sin jumped on it and actually increased my desire to sin. And so it, it, it isn't the obvious paramount example of this. Just a few weeks ago, God gave the Ten Commandments. Now they completely rebel and replace. They even used the gold God gave them in Egypt to build an idol instead of building the tabernacle. And they do all this while they can see God's glory cloud on top of the mountain while he's planning with Moses on how to dwell with them. So they rightly want more of God. They want God in their midst. But very wrongly, they take matters in their own hands, fashion a God like they want him to be, one that will let them do what they want to do. And our sin nature just does that. It takes the command of God, twists it up, and rebels against it. And we look for a God that lets us do and live like we want to live. So what do we do about that? Well, this sin is so grievous, it threatens everything. So God tells Moses they are a stiff-necked people. They're stubbornly entrenched in their ways. Then he warns Moses, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. And the issue is they had sworn to this at the mountain when they made covenant with God. They swore to be faithful upon their own destruction. So this is what they deserve. Just a few weeks after making that promise, this is what God should do. This is justice. Yet Moses then does some amazing, intense, interceding priestly work on their behalf. And it's so beautiful. We're going to probably treat it next week. And in the face of Moses' intercession, God relents. He disciplines them through the Levite's sword. He sends a plague among them. But the worst thing he says to them, the worst discipline over them, is that God tells Moses he'll give the people the promised land, but he's not going with them to the promised land. 
He'll send an angel, but he won't send his presence. Evidently, this angel he's going to send is not the angel of the Lord, who's God's presence in their midst. It's some other angel. And the reason God gives for this is, lest I consume you in the way, for you are stiff-necked people. And the idea is, I'm so holy, and you're so sinful, it's just not safe for you to be around me. Now, with this news, the reaction of the people is stunning. So look at chapter 33, verse 4. How are the people going to react to God saying, I'll give you the promised land, but I'm not going with you? And the question is, how would you react? Well, in verse 4, it says, When the people heard this disastrous word... They mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. And honestly, that's a surprising statement. I mean, you'd think the people, from what we know, would be fine with it. I mean, you're promising to give us what we want, our own country, our own land. You're going to give us the benefits, and you're going to give us the benefits, and you're not going to go with us. It's going to be a lot easier. I mean, we want, we want the land. We want the benefits. And so now you're going to get, you promised to do it. I mean, if we're honest, oftentimes we treat our relationship with God that way. I want your benefits. I'm not so sure I want you. But amazingly here is that now more than ever, they realize how devastating that would be. Now more than ever, it dawns upon them that I want God more than I want God's gifts. In a powerful way, I want God. I don't want the promised land without God's presence. And they weep and they repent. And taking off their ornaments is a symbol of deep repentance. Those are the ornaments they collected to make the calf. Later, they're going to take those same ornaments and make the tabernacle with them. It's a watershed moment in Israel's life to see the depths of their sin and to increase their desire for God. And it's not only that, but in the next section you notice Moses builds a tent outside of town. This isn't the tabernacle. It's a tent of meeting outside the camp. And he starts going out there. And it's this little mini revival that takes place. When Moses goes out to it, all the people get up, stand at the door of their tents, and watch Moses till he enters the tent. Then when the glory cloud descends over the tent, they worship God at the entrance of their tents. Things are becoming very personal for them. They they want God. So it's not only that they repent, but they're full of a deeper reverential awe of God, and that's the dynamic. You see, sin and holiness and grace builds that into our lives. Well, all of this context opens up to us one of the most important sections of Scripture. So Moses prays again. And with the shock of all that's happened, Moses needs reassurance. Where am I found in your plan? Are you going to go with us? We want you to go with us. So he appeals to God on the basis of grace. Notice in 33.13, if I have found favor in your sight. That is, if, I am, if, if your grace is sufficient for me. 
He beseeches God to go with them, and then he asks God to show him his ways. And so God promises to go with them. Um, He promises to go with them, and then God responds. And then Moses responds after God promises that, because he wants more than that. And Moses then looks to God and says, Please show me your glory. That's verse 18. Moses wants to know God better. In this situation of distress, he's wanting to know God. He's a man that wants God. Please show me your glory. And God responds to that. God responds this way, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now notice something incredible here. Moses asks to see God's glory, literally his weightiness, which we normally think of as his majesty, his light, his brilliance. And God responds to Moses by saying, I'm going to show you my goodness. It implies that God's, that the, God's greatest glory is his goodness. His glory is his goodness. He's showing the focal point of his glory. One author says it this way, when God sets the terms of what his glory is, he surprises us. It's especially his goodness towards us. You see, God's goodness is all his attributes, all his moral perfections, but it's all those characteristics directed towards us for our good, for our flourishing, for our happiness. An older commentator, Stephen Charnock, writes a famous book called The Existence and Attributes of God. He says... The goodness of God is the captain attribute that leads the rest to act. So everything about God is focused on your good. That's his goodness. It's his generosity towards us. It's his grace towards us, his undeserved favor towards us. And God explains his goodness by saying, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he's saying a couple things. One is I'm sovereign over the display of my grace and mercy. And two, I bestow grace and mercy not because you were obedient or performed well, which is very good news to you right now, but because of the deep wells of my own love and devotion and faithfulness and generosity for you. It's not what you deserved. It's what I'm giving you in spite of what you deserve. Well, then God does put Moses in the cleft of the rock. He shows him the after effects of his glory. In some way, he makes himself visible to Moses. But God's emphasis to Moses isn't on appearing to him, but preaching to him. And so after God reaffirms his holy nature by getting Moses to cut new stone tablets, I'm still a holy God, He then preaches one of the most important sermons in the whole Old Testament, and that's our text today. It's Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, we're going to see something about that goodness God was telling Moses about. In Exodus 34, 6, and 7, God defines his name, the Lord, Yahweh. And you recall that's the name God gave to Moses in Exodus 30 when he sent him to Egypt. 
It's his covenant name, his redeeming name, his saving name, personal name. But this definition of God's name in Exodus 34, 6, and 7 becomes Israel's working definition of God. It becomes their confession of faith. It becomes their creed. It's how God deals with them and governs them and treats them. The immense importance of this little sermon God gives to Moses right here is seen in how often it's repeated throughout the Old Testament. I mean, Numbers 14, Moses repeats this when Israel refuses to enter the promised land. He says, this is how you treat us. Remember, Nehemiah, you know, they're, they're, they're a weak nation surrounded by nations. Nehemiah appeals to it. The psalmist over and over appeal to this sermon. That's why you hear prayer. Isaiah does, Joel does, Jonah does, Nahum appeals to this sermon. It's their working definition of how God treats them. Jonah's the funniest one. I know you're not going to judge the Ninevites because you're slow to anger, and I wish you weren't right now. But he appeals to this character and definition of God, and I want you to appeal to this. So again, when God defines who he is, when God defines his name, his glory, especially his goodness, he uses seven attributes. And I want you to see the order of them. They're not haphazard. I want you to remember the context wherein God gives this definition of who He is. It's not their great performance or Moses' confidence. It's their terrible sin and Moses' distress. How does God respond to that situation? The first words out of God's mouth in this sermon, which becomes Israel's creed, is, I'm merciful. It's not, I'm holy. He is holy. But he wants them to know, I'm merciful. Imagine how reassuring that is to Moses and to the people. It's his first word. It means, I'm compassionate. I'm sympathetic towards you in your weakness and sin. In fact, I'm drawn to you, especially in your need. Like, your need doesn't make me want to shy away and hold up my hands and, and, and say, that's enough. It's when it, I, I'm drawn to you in need. I'm merciful. The, the second characteristic is I'm gracious. God's grace is the ground of His mercy. It's His undeserved favor. It's as if God says, look, my mercies to you aren't due to your worthiness. You've proven that. You're unworthy. My mercies to you are a free gift flowing from my abundant grace and love for you, which you can't understand, but it, it will overwhelm you. Third, I'm slow to anger. Like, I'm not locked and loaded. I'm not looking to lower the hammer. I don't use a bazooka when a scalpel will do. Like, I'm not going to eviscerate you at, at the moment's notice. I'm, I'm long-suffering. I'm patient in the face of your sin and foolishness. My anger is not easily provoked. In fact, it has to be over and over again provoked. My mercy is not provoked. I see your need and I'm coming for you. I give time for your repentance. I draw you with my mercy. I will discipline and judge, but not hastily or eagerly. 
His fourth statement, I'm abounding in steadfast love. And that's God's hesed, God's covenant love. It's probably the most beautiful word in Scripture. It speaks of God's covenant committed relationship that He says, I'm going to act in love to you. I'm going to exercise goodness towards you. I'm not just talking about it. I'm, I'm, I'm putting it in practice. It's I'm seeking your well-being, even when it costs me, even when you fail. And I'm going to do this for a thousand generations. It's not that when you get to a generation 1001, I'm done and I served my time. The sense is, I'm always doing it, and you ain't getting rid of me, and I'm coming after you, and I'm coming after your family because I love you. I love you. And fifth, I'm abounding in faithfulness. And this is maybe the second most beautiful word in Scripture. It's the word emmet. It's the word for truth. But applied here, it's covenant faithfulness, steadfastness. I'm going to remain true to my covenant even if you're not. Even if you break it and reject it and walk away, I'm not going to do it. I won't change. I won't throw in the towel. I won't throw my hands up in disgust and walk away. I'm not going to give up. I'm sticking with it even if you don't stick with it. And sixth, I'm forgiving. And this is the strongest affirmation in the whole Old Testament that God forgives sins. Three different words for sin right there in this small little phrase are used. And forgive here is literally the word lift or carry or take. The sense is you feel the crushing weight of your sin right now and it's just killing you. I'm the one who's coming right beside you. I'm going to lift it up my own shoulders. I'm taking it off of you. I'm going to forgive you. Just imagine how the people experience that statement. They just send the seemingly unforgivable sin. How do you recover from that? How do you get past that? And yet God, right in that context, gives them the strongest affirmation of forgiveness right in the midst of their worst sin. And then seventh, I am a disciplining God, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And this statement is very important. It reminds us that God's not just an indulgent benefactor. He hasn't lowered his standards. He reiterates the Ten Commandments. He is a holy God. It reminds us of that. It also reminds us that we are not to presume on his goodness. Romans 2.4 says the kindness of God has a point. It leads you to repentance. At the same time, notice, this doesn't undermine what's gone before. In fact, notice, it's, it's the last in the series. All the other statements are a lens by which we view this. At once, it's a statement about how families exist in covenant relationship with each other. In some sense, we share each other's guilt. I mean, it was obvious in Israel's day because three or four generations lived in the same tent. And so it says that in some way God 
enacts judicial punishments on sins in the family. It also means something we are readily mindful of, that poor examples and poor influences in families have a negative and oftentimes hurtful, damaging effect. We speak of generational sins. But it also means that God uses His temporal punishments and even generational sins to wake families up to their sin in a way they wouldn't otherwise. It's wrapped up in grace. It also means in light of the thousand generations that God's abounding love for us, extending to a thousand generations is such that it's going to move even through those three or four generations to do things we could never imagine, to swallow it up with His own good purposes for us. As the oceans pound the sand, those thousand generations swallowing up beautifully even His disciplines. And there's a host of biblical examples for that. But ultimately, this statement, and part of the beauty of it, the real beauty of it, is it moves us to the cross of Christ. Because we're left with this question, I want Exodus 34 to be my creed. I want that to be bedrock for me, but how can God show me grace and faithfulness and love and forgiveness and be slow to anger? And here, how can he clear my guilt? How can he do that? How can that be my creed? But you see, it moves us to the cross of Christ. Because what we found so far is God's glory is especially displayed in his goodness. And the New Testament shows us God's glory is especially displayed in the cross of Christ. And the cross of Christ is God's goodness to sinners, where His holiness is exalted by His Son, where He drinks the wrath on our behalf because He wants to elevate God's holiness. And yet, that boundless love and grace and mercy He has to sinners is displayed in that He takes it on our behalf in order that He can give us the love of God and clear our guilt and bring us forgiveness and bring us close, and God can dwell in our midst. All the qualities are supremely manifested in the Son, and the whole confession moves to the cross of Christ, and God says, my glory is seen in the cross, and that's my goodness exercised towards you. So you and I can hold this creed even better than Israel could because it speaks of Jesus. We see the goodness of God on display in the gospel. And when our sin looks at God's commandments and energizes us to sin more, we fall back on our creed and we say, wait a second, I like this God better than the God the world's offering me right now. And this is the one I want to follow and glorify and give thanks to for my good and the good of the world. And may it be the case. God's people said, Amen. Let's stand.